Good morning. Foggy morning this morning. We'll see if it burns off. But uh, I, I just want to name it. It's a good day to watch sports, too, huh? We got some. <laughs> Go Giants. Well, I'm going to uh, read this morning, uh, preach out of Mark chapter 10. I'll be reading verses uh, 17 through 22. So feel free to open up with me. I'll be reading from the NRSV this morning. Mark 10, verses 17 through 22. As he, Jesus, was setting out on a journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. He said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these since my youth. Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said, You lack one thing. Go, sell what you own, give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he was shocked and went away grieving, for he had many possessions. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would be with us now. Jesus, we want to encounter you through your word. Help us to be open to your word this morning. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing, be acceptable to you. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The Hamburger Haven was my favorite Greasy Spoon Diner in San Francisco. It had this funky circa 1970s orange vinyl furniture, and it had grease stains on the wall. But breakfast there was amazing and super cheap. Uh, The Haven was just a couple blocks away from the University of San Francisco, so it was a really good place to grab some cheap food with students when I was uh, doing campus ministry at at USF. Um, It was a great place to talk about the sort of epic things one talks about with college students. And I had one conversation there with a student named Jim that to this day is still really strong in my memory. As Jim and I were, we'd finished our meal, and we were sipping coffee and talking, and I learned that something wasn't quite right with Jim. It wasn't just the mound of greasy food. We'd just scarfed down. From the outsider's perspective, everything seemed so right for Jim. This guy was, Jim was smart. He he still is. He's a really smart guy. He he was a senior at the time, and just in a few weeks, he'd be named valedictorian of, of USF. I asked him, Jim, how do you know you're going to be you know, valedictorian? It's not the end of school yet. And he's like, well, I've never gotten anything lower than an A, so I kind of pulled things out, process of elimination. It's pretty amazing. Um, and not only that, he wasn't like a lightweight English major like myself. He's, <laughs> he studied finance and economics, and just for fun, he studied Japanese as well. And he was conversant in Japanese. Um, 
He was also, he wasn't just a smart kind of bookworm guy. He, he also was socially adept. He uh, was a part of our, our fellowship. He led worship. He was an RA. And even amidst all these different activities, he always had time for friends. Uh, in the past year, uh, a year ago from this, the conversation I had with him, he had been awarded a, a prestigious internship with a um, really well-known financial uh, firm in the financial district, San Francisco. And they had liked Jim so much, they had a full-time job waiting for him once he graduated. Jim said, um, you know, realistically, if he took the job, by the time he was in his mid-30s, he'd be a really wealthy man. But as we sat and talked that morning, Jim told me that the future he'd always hoped for and worked really hard for just totally seemed flavorless to him. As I took in these words, I, you know, I kind of imagined counseling Jim on how to follow Jesus uh, amid working in the world of finance. How to avoid greed. How to think about all the good he could do with, with the money he would make. Um, he could give away a lot of his income. I have to admit, you know, I was raising support at the time. I thought, eh, maybe, you know, Jim, I might benefit from your ample generosity. Who knows? But as we, as we probe deeper, as I probe deeper, I, I, this, that wasn't it. It wasn't just how to approach work. It was Something else. There's a different kind of restlessness in Jim. I could see a sort of wildness in his eyes. A sense of freedom and adventure. That realization that maybe a different kind of life was possible. A new vision of life had captured Jim. I would learn that this vision of life had turned his life upside down. And there we were at the Haven, trying to figure out life together. Uh, As I'll share later, Jim had, had an unexpected encounter that changed his life and entire trajectory of, of his life. Like Jim, the man from our scripture today, by all accounts, seemed to be living life with the grain. Mark tells us he was a man of many possessions. Popular notions of that day would have, would have meant that, you know, a wealthy man, um, that this was a sign of God's favor upon him. Uh, one could read Proverbs 10.22 and quote, The blessing of the Lord makes rich, and he adds no sorrow with it. And not only is this man wealthy and therefore favored by God, but he seems to follow the commandments faithfully. He answers Jesus, Teacher, I have kept all these since my youth. And I really do believe he kept those commandments. Sometimes we read this passage going, Yeah, right, there's no way he really kept all those commandments. Um, This shows how self-deluded this guy is. Or we might read the scripture and say, oh, there's only six commandments here. That's kind of curious. Um, and, you know, while it's interesting to think about that stuff, I, I think this is actually a misreading of the Jewish context. I don't think any Jewish person would uh, read the, uh, think of the commandments as things where you'd be blameless or perfect before them. Keeping the commandments was a response to grace. And it was undertaken through the law's gracious provision. The Jews are the covenant people of God because of God's great, gracious action. It's telling that Jesus doesn't rebuke the, man, uh, rebuke the man's claim of keeping the commandments. So not only is this man a wealthy and faithful Jew, but he's also wise, right? Because he goes to Jesus. He knows to go to for guidance. And he comes to Jesus really humbly. We learn that he runs up to him and kneels before him. And he calls Jesus good teacher. And then he asked Jesus the perfect question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? 
Doesn't this question really get to the heart of it all? If I got one shot at asking Jesus a question, it might have been this one. This is exactly the sort of wise, pragmatic question that probably made this man wealthy in the first place. He had procured material wealth. Now he was going to acquire some spiritual capital. But this question is an interesting one uh, in the context of the Gospel of Mark. It almost seems a little bit out of place. We've got to pay attention to this. Uh, the, the words eternal life in Greek, uh, zoe aianos, don't occur anywhere else in the Gospel of Mark. So far in, in Mark's narrative, people come to Jesus looking for healing or exorcism, but, but not this eternal life. And I think it's important to look at this term a little bit more, uh, eternal life. We might be tempted, as when we hear that, that term, to think about heaven after we die. Um, that this guy was coming up to Jesus asking, Jesus, how do I make sure that when I die, I go to heaven? But if we pay close attention to the, first, uh, the context of first century Ju- Judaism and the Gospel of Mark, the meaning of eternal life becomes clear. I think this man believed that Jesus was the Messiah who was to come and usher in the age to come. He wanted to be in the best possible position when Jesus was the the one, the Messiah, to finally deliver Israel from her oppression and bring about her eternal reign among the nations, as the prophets foretold. In other words, this man is asking how to have a share in inheritance in this long-awaited coming kingdom. And as as we look at context, if you look ahead in Mark 10.37, we see the same sort of jockeying for position when James and John asked to sit at Jesus' right and left hand in glory. James and John aren't, aren't talking about up in heaven. They're thinking that when Jesus is ruling the nations, they want to be on his right and his left. They want a share of that power. In both that case and in this case, Jesus redefines uh, these ideas of kingdom and power and ultimately what constitutes the eternal kind of life. That is life of the coming age that invades here and now. So I wonder what this man, this, this uh, wealthy, faithful, wise Jew, I wonder what he thought Jesus would say when he came up and humbled himself before Jesus. I imagine he was thinking, Jesus saying, you're just the kind of fellow I'm looking for. You're a faithful keeper of the covenant. You've been successful with what you've been given. Now, come follow me. Just who I'm looking for. But like he usually does, Jesus surprises us. He doesn't answer this way. Instead, Jesus looking at him, seemingly peering into his soul, loves him. And says, you lack one thing. Go, sell what you own, give the money to the poor. You will have treasure in heaven, then come follow me. For this man with so many possessions there's somehow still a glaring poverty, still a glaring lack in this man who had such integrity before the commandments, man who responded to God's law. There's somehow another commandment for him. I wonder what those around uh, must have thought when they saw Jesus um, issue this, this uh, command to this man. Why does Jesus say this? Why does Jesus give this command to the man? 
I think it requires for us to do some, some critical thinking here, some digging. I, I think the problem for this man is that it's, I don't think it's because possessions are evil that he has to abandon all that he has and give to the poor. No, I don't think it's about uh, kind of an unjust distribution of goods where Jesus, a la Karl Marx, is encouraging the man to perform a radical act of social redistribution. Not that Jesus would be opposed to that, but I don't, I don't think that's what's going on here. I'm convinced that Jesus, like a surgeon carving out that cancerous mass, is telling this man the hard but liberating truth about what it means to have eternal life in Jesus. The eternal kind of life is rather that it comes about re- by reordering your life around Christ. And it requires relinquishing everything you would ever dare to call your own. But it's not because we have to pay for it or earn it. But it's because we've got to become like children to receive it. It's a new way of being in the world. It requires letting go. And simply put, the kingdom of God doesn't fit into hands full of other kingdoms. The problem with possessions, it seems, is that they end up possessing us. They present a rival to our full allegiance to Jesus. They offer a different vision, a different story of how to be in the world. I wonder if part of the problem for this man was that he was thinking of eternal life in terms of it being a possession. What must I do to have eternal life? He's asking the right question, but in the wrong sort of way. This man is still commodifying. He's putting a price tag on it. Viewing Jesus as a means rather than an end. Understanding Jesus as a source of valuable information rather than the place of transformation. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, commenting on this passage, says, Eternal life for this man is an academic problem which is worth discussing with a good master. In this case, relationship gets left out for information. We can do this too. We end up uh, seeing Jesus as a means instead of an end. We end up using him. And when we use Jesus, we miss out on eternal life which is explicitly the life lived in relationship to God. Jesus defines eternal life in John 17, 3, as relationship. This is eternal life, he says, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So Jesus invites this man and all of us to strip away our grand plans so that he can become our determining reality are one thing. For this man, it meant selling what he owned, letting go of a particular way of operating in the world so that he could pursue Jesus and his kingdom with singleness of heart. And for him, it meant giving everything to the poor. This isn't Jesus' command to everybody in the Gospels, but it is for this man, for his soul. Of course, when Jesus gives this man this very difficult commandment, you can tell how hard it really struck home. It, scripture reads, reads that he, he grieved over it. I mean, that was a, it was a big loss right here. Right? There would be a loss of social standing, uh, not to mention the comfort that comes from having 
the power that wealth brings, and, and a sense of security. Jesus is asking him to strip all that away for a different kind of security, a different kind of wealth, a different kind of uh, social standing. Clearly, the more you have, as the cliche goes, the more you have to lose. I think this is why Jesus says it's difficult for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Because the kingdom is an upside-down one. It's an unexpected one. It's where the last are first and the least are the greatest. The king of kings in this kingdom is nailed to a cross. And for some, this is hard to swallow. It is for me sometimes. The good news of the kingdom of God is that it's available for everyone, everywhere, all the time. Its availability is not a question. Our availability is the question. Are we available to it? So what do we do with a passage like this? I I read this passage and it makes me squirm a little bit. It makes me think, what do I do, God, with, with this? It's tempting to spiritualize it. To think about it in the way that, uh, you know, where we read and we say, well, I just need to kind of figuratively sell what I'm under the illusion of, of owning. But might there be more than that? If, if we, the highly educated citizens of the wealthiest country the world has ever known, aren't like this man sometimes, I don't know who is. I don't want to rule out the possibility that Jesus might be asking us to sell all that we have and give to the poor. I don't know what Jesus is asking you to do. I don't. But it feels pastorally wrong not to tell you to be open to what he might ask of you. In our own way, we all got to run up to Jesus and kneel before him and, and say, Lord Jesus, what would you have me do? We, we should do this with humble hearts, not trying to fit Jesus into our plans, but trying to fit ourselves into Jesus' plans, making ourselves available to his. We shouldn't rule out the possibility of something radical or something normal. I've known people who, because of a sense of calling of, uh, from Jesus, have abandoned their kind of culturally expected, well-off trajectories and have lived a life of service to and with the poor. This still happens here in the States and abroad. I, uh, it's not an easy life. <laughs> it's not romantic. Um, parents are often heartbroken to see their children follow this call of Jesus. I just visited a friend on Friday who, with his wife, have chosen to live in a really, uh, really impoverished part of Oakland. And... Their lives are beautiful, but they're hard. Uh, he told me somebody just got shot and killed across the street from where they live. And you can see the tension in, in life and the stress there. Um, but at the same time, I, the, the presence of Jesus in their lives is unmistakable. I just sense it when I'm around them. There's an abundance of life there. And, and other folks I've known who've pursued this intentional path um, with and for the poor have experienced the same, same thing amid the many get difficulties that come from it. But there's also something beautiful about someone who, who works maybe in the world of finance, or works in an office, yet does so with freedom, 
with the freedom that comes from making Jesus your one thing. The freedom that comes from having your identity not wrapped up in your work, but in, but in God who calls you his own. When we approach life this way, we're freed from having to, to make work our one thing. And free from fear and greed, um, we, we can approach work as a way in which we can glorify God. The most important thing, uh, I think, to realize is that when our identity is rooted in Jesus Christ and him calling us his own, uh, work uh, for the glory of God will flow out of that place of identity because you won't be reaching for it and grabbing for it in the work that you do. The good news for you and for everyone else for me is that Jesus looks on us and loves us. I love that part of the passage. Did you catch that? When it reads that Jesus looked at him and loved him even before he responded. Jesus loves us too deeply not to tell us the truth about what's keeping us from him. What he may be asking of us may just totally shatter the foundations of our world, like apparently it did for this man. But Jesus' hard words come from love. And if they're from love, then it's for your ultimate and eternal good. You have to have that in mind. Jesus loved my friend Jim. As he looked at Jim and told him to pursue a different life from the one he was planning. Uh, as we talked more at the Haven, Jim uh, told me what happened. He was on the bus home one day from the investment firm's office, and uh, Jim wrote about this later. I'm going to read his story in his own words. While living in San Francisco, I spent time working for a large brokerage firm. And on one evening on my trip home from the office, I had no choice but to take the 31 Balboa bus line Translation, a bus ride through one of the roughest, dirtiest, most defiled sections of the city, the Tenderloin. I did not want to see it, I did not want to hear it, but most of all, I did not want to smell it. The smell would engulf me, the liquor, the smoke, the grunge of the homeless. I sat quietly, facing forward, eyes closed, listening to my iPod, wanting nothing more than to be anywhere else. A sudden jerk of the bus caused me to open my eyes. There I was in a suit and tie, surrounded by men and women who perhaps had not bathed in days. I gazed out the window and saw a middle-aged man huddled in the entryway of a rundown hotel. I made eye contact with him, gave a quick smile, and nodded my head to acknowledge his presence. Then I saw something in his eyes. Though shaded by his greasy beard and ratty, long, grayish hair, his eyes lit up as if to say, It feels so good to talk with someone. He smiled back at me, then looked around with an almost giddy, youthful exuberance. I honestly thought he was going to get up and dance down the street. It was at that very moment, in encountering his joy, that Jesus is saying, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. It came to mind. The next 20 minutes through the tenderloin were perhaps the most conflicting yet empowering moments of my life. I was working for wealth in the financial district, something seeking after God, that I may be a man after his own heart. Was I truly desperate for my Savior and dying of thirst for water welling up to eternal life? In response to the cross, for me, it became a simple question. How am I going to spend the rest of my life encountering and serving Christ? I left that job in San Francisco. He did, and began serving with Enterprise International, 
a ministry that focuses on business for mission. My passion is continuing to seek God, and my desire is to be involved in commercial ventures uh, as I seek God. Through economics and entrepreneurship, I have the opportunity to integrate my business acumen with my pursuit of holistic Christian transformation. This is a couple years ago that Jim wrote this. And I spoke with him this week because I figured I should probably get his permission to, to tell his story. And he granted it. And uh, Jim's been a missionary with Enterprise International for the last uh, three years or so. And uh, hasn't been easy. But it's been awesome to see his uh, gifting in finance and economics and see how he has applied this to developing uh, economies worldwide. And him and he's married now and him and his wife are continuing to pursue God and are likely to relocate to Africa um, in the next year or so. But I asked him, I said, Jim, what do you have to say about this passage? I'm curious about one who's kind of had a sort of experience of this. And he said, you know what? Um, it's not because God wanted me to be a hero. It's not because it was wrong to work in the world of finance. But for me, it was about identity. My identity was so wrapped up in finance and in being a successful um, you know, finance guy that I wasn't allowing Christ to be my identity. And, and God wanted to strip that away um, and start something new in me. It was really interesting to hear his perspective. And then um, I asked him just a simple question. Well, you know, Jim, would you, would you do it again? He said, yeah, it's, I have trouble paying the bills at the end of the month. But absolutely, I would do it again without a doubt. I'm thankful for Jim's testimony and this friendship. It inspires me. It challenges me. It reminds me that Jesus is still disrupting lives. Still answering our sometimes misguided questions. Still, still daring us to go and sell what we own and give the money to the poor. And then to come follow him. I hope that we, like this man, care enough to grieve over the false stories that seek to define our lives. And I hope that we can feel the warmth of Jesus Christ's loving gaze upon us and seek him always and only for his own sake as our one thing. Let's pray. Lord, this is a hard word. It's hard for me to stand up here and preach it um, because we live in a culture and a place that's so dominated by things, possessions, consuming, and it's easy to turn you, Jesus, into a product. We don't want to. Holy Spirit, help us to seek seek you, seek God for, for your own sake, O oh Lord. One thing we ask, that we would see you and know you. This is eternal life. Thank you for this time, Lord, and um, ask that you would uh, allow us to to find our stories in you, in relationship to you. Through Christ our Lord. Amen.